Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's show is not an interview, but rather part one of a two-part discussion with the author Ivan Obolensky, who has previously been on HealthScape. A bio will be included, and his website is ivanobolensky.com, where you can check out his blogs. Today's topic is The Anatomy of Death, a montage. We will discuss one of the most inevitable events in life that also just happens to be one of the subjects we least discuss, even at funerals. We must certainly prepare for death by prearranging funerals and writing wills for that which cannot, on pain of life, be mentioned. Euphemisms like demise or passing on or away partly keep it at arm's length when we have to bring up the subject. And yet we know that we are all still on the relentless communal conveyor belt headed in its direction. Also, having no idea what our position is on that belt doesn't exactly help. Not that knowing where we would are placed would actually add value either, come to think of it. Whatever death is, it is certainly a mystery. We can all agree on that. And we all totally get Woody Allen's classic line, I'm not afraid of drying, dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Ivan, welcome to Hellscape. So good to have you back with us. Thank you, Trevor. Love being here. So, Ivan, I guess we need to explain a few things, um, what a montage is or refresh people, and also um, why we are approaching the subject in the way we are going to do. So if I can just kick off by saying a montage is just a combination or, uh, or of different elements that may be perceived as a more unified whole concept or image. So in French, uh, montage means to edit. And you remember those old movies where they talking about the First World War and then you see this person, you're following through the film, sort of tripping over candle, uh, calendar pages, that kind of thing. So the idea is it's like the gestalt um, theory image, um, well, not theory, more image, where the, the, um, the whole picture is so much more than the sum of its constituent parts. You want to add to that, please? No, I, I, that, that makes sense to me. It's also, you know, it's like a mosaic and you're looking at little pieces and hopefully by the time you get to the end of it, you see a bigger, better picture and it's clearer, clearer. I mean, when you're talking about death, I mean, that's, you know, it's not clear, but um, we can at least try to make some sense of it. Yeah. And the other thing I, I, I like to bring this up, I have brought it up before on a health on a healthscape um, session or two or a episode, is that you know we think of information always. We're going to analyze this. We're going to analyze that, meaning break it down to smaller and smaller parts. 
And yet we forget about the other way of accumulating knowledge, which is not the analytic approach, but the opposite or the synthetic approach, where we take um, ideas and concepts related to the subject being discussed, discussed and get a bigger picture and a more of a firm grip on what the subject is about by building up this art, this um, montage or edifice. So this lends itself, as by the way, to more complex and abstract concepts such as meaning in general, love, life, and perhaps death. Um, because when you look at something through anal analyzing and cutting up into smaller and smaller pieces, you end up with, well, very little at the end of the day, and it can even be done to the level of being stuck with fact, uh, facts that are unhelpful. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, just a few well, definitions of death. I'll, I'll start that off with a medical background. So we talk about clinical death when the patient is clinically dead. Somebody has a heart attack and the spouse calls the doctor and they said, look, the, he's dead, clinically dead. And that basically just means the cessation of your blood circulation and your breathing. So the doctor can't feel a pulse, can't hear heart sounds, there's no detectable breathing and uh, can't hear lung sounds. So that's the common one. Brain death is also called brain stem death. That's when a person who's been on artificial life support for um, a long time no longer has any brain functions. And that means they will not regain consciousness or able to breathe ever without support. And so uh, anyone who's brain dead is legally confirmed as dead. Then there's another one. There's tissue death or histologic death, sometimes called. And that's where person's been dead for some time and the cells are already breaking up by a process called autolysis. Um, now, there's many ways to die. As we know, there's natural accidents, suicide, homicide, undetermined. Sometimes we don't find out. Not going to discuss them all. They are big subjects like euthanasia and so on. Um, what I think we're going to look at more is we all know there are many ways to die. Some are mercifully brief, um, and some are protracted. But I think what people really feel uh, fear, Ivan, is is post-mortem, like what kind of environment, if anything of us at all survives. Yeah, that is, that, that's a big question. Right. I have a thought on, on some of this, and also in keeping with our montage. Mm -hmm. um, if we look, the idea of a paradox, um, like all men are liars, uh, it flips. It's, it's like an Escher drawing. Um, are you going up or are you going down? And you can never hold the opposite in your mind. You know, you either, it's like the lay, you see those pictures where you have, you either see a swan or you see an old yes. lady. You can't see both. You have to see one or the other. So when I think of paradoxes, I think of it as a things. It's, it's not just one thing. It's both things. And in some ways, maybe our looking at death is incorrect in the sense that life and death are a paradox that actually 
go together. And and I looked at this quite a bit, you know, I, I'm, you know, in, in my way. One of the things I, I looked at was um, you know, what happens to things at a very, very micro level. I mean, we have something called plank time. Plank time is, you know, undefined in the sense that we can't measure it. Um, it's it's at 5.4 times 10 to the minus 44th seconds. It's really, really small. You also have a Planck length. And when you look at the universe, and what would you have at that point? It, well, it would be sort of like a giant mosaic, but not in motion. So what you have is arrangements of things. And interesting thing about a paradox is that they flip. They flicker back and forth. And you might sort of wonder, you know, if, you know, if we look at life and death as two parts of the same thing, you get this flip-flop mm. that goes by that sort of motivates things and, and makes the universe work. Of course, you know, if you think of um, at that level of smallness, you're looking at a pixel on a screen, uh, you know, you really don't get the image until you look at, you know, what is all the pixels saying mm -hmm. and so i think in some ways that is a that's a really important concept to look at when we when we look at death is because people look at it as separate from life but in mm -hmm. actual fact it is probably yeah. the same thing only in a in a different guise it's like looking at the swan as opposed to the old lady yeah I, I like life itself it is infinitely kind and it's thoroughly cruel Right, and families, I mean, there are these wonderful little warm, fuzzy kumbaya harbors in the storm, and they can flip a few months later into a, a, a nest of vipers. I, I think there, there isn't, you know, we, we do see things in sort of like, not in holistically. We all talk about being treated holistically, living holistically, but we don't see things holistically. And, um, and, and, and that, that's, the, that's the big problem. Um, in fact, one could say most big issues in life, if you don't see a paradox, it's possibly not uh, receiving a thorough enough treatment. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Now, the fears we have, um, or, of course, FOMO comes into it, fear of missing out. What actually is shocking, I mean, people talk about infinity, but I think it's very, my mind can't, fathom infinity i just know there's no end and then this collapse somewhere um undefined place but um but the irreversibility i'm i'm i can do understand irreversibility like you know glass not going back into sta sand without a fight kind of thing um, but irreversibility scares me and of course what are we going to compare it to we're going to compare it to our gold standard and what is that a study series of one. Mm -hmm. This is what we know. So we we saying, well, you know, life can be a, a bummer and this and that and, and a paradox, of course, but we're not in a hurry to leave that for something unknown. Again, if if anything of us, and I'm looking, well, I'm looking more in the terms of consciousness and so forth. Yeah, I, 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 I can think with that. One of the things I look at is, um, I, I write books, and 
you know, I, one of them has to do with shamanism. And, and an interesting thought came out of this, which was that which you cannot embrace or that which you cannot run from, you must embrace. Mm-hmm. And this is a really interesting sort of dynamic because if one takes that and looks at life and death from that point of view, death must be embraced. And uh, we, I remember Steve Jobs did a terrific commencement address mm-hmm. to, I forget which university it was, but it, he was talking about how death is always sort of there and that he had to be very active and very constructive within the time frame that he has. And I think that's also one of the things that uh, people, people run away from death in a very, you know, uh, I mean, self-survival, yes, but um, more so it's, it's unknown. There's a lot of fear there. And I think uh, if you start thinking about, well, if you can't run from something and, and none of us can run from death, death will happen then we have to, the only logical to me solution is to embrace it. And by embracing it, you can take some of the, the fear element out of it, but it also gives you a tremendous zest for life because it's something that is intrinsic in living. So therefore you have to live you know, your best, so to speak, um, you know, to the max that you can do and and I think that's that's an important element. Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. Um, you, uh, there's so many things one can say about this because if you look at our early history, um, the uh, Egyptians, the Tibetans, um, shamanism, as you say, those books of the dead written both by the Egyptians and the Tibetans. I remember reading them at university. And I really didn't get a lot out of the Egyptian one other than that death is temporary and it's quite a difficult, there's always difficulty getting there. And uh, then bomb, you know, their cats and anything they thought they might need. But then you go into some other kind of life. Uh, the Tibetan book I found very compassionate because you've got a whisperer that stays with you for over a month, I believe, um, telling you yeah. the stages and stuff. And then the well, there's some. Um- yeah, in the um, in the Tibetan one, it's called the uh, the Bardo Thodol, and what that means is liberation through hearing during the intermediate state, mm-hmm. and um, that's uh, so. It lasts for forty nine days, and the person who is dead is asked to listen to the words of the monk, and they each day they read from this book. And it is sort of a guide. Um, It says that you'll experience, you know, the fact that you've lost people and things like that. And um, the fact is, yes, that's very sad, but you just sort of have to get used to it. And then it includes periods where, you know, they're assaulted by demons. I mean, that's also a part of that. And then by the time the 49 days, you're able to reincarnate or at least choose another life that's their understanding of it and um it's very uh it's exciting because um the tibetan book of the dead is actually part of a much larger book 
called The Profound Dharma of Self-Liberation Through the Intention of the Peaceful and Wrathful Ones. I mean, one gets a very, I mean, interesting viewpoint on that. And they tend to be very, I mean, these the Tibetan monks tend to be extremely, um, death is sort of part of things, and they, they seem to accept it and have a tremendous acceptance, and um, even now in the present. Not, not to mention commitment, right? It takes a lot, I, I would think. Um, uh, on the shamans, I remember reading, being in the library, I used to study uh, in the main campus library, which was different from the medical campus, and I walked out and I saw this book and I thought, well, uh, archaic, um, archaic uh, journeys in ecstasy. Well, what's uh, that's not the right title. Um, anyway, or archaic methods of ecstasy, something like that by Messiah Eliard. Um, oh. And I and, and I thought, no, I don't have time for this now because uh, there's exams coming up. But then, for some reason, um, I looked at when it was published. It was 1957, which is the year I was born. And that was enough to go <laughs> to reading it. But it was the first time that I understood that there were groups of people that treated illness by chasing something of you that was outside of you. And that to me was terribly interesting because we're all supposed to be self-contained. You know, the mental stuff's in our brain. The um, emotions are in our brain. You, you know, you that gets obliterated. You kind of there's nothing going on, and they that was the one thing um, they would chase and find the piece that was missing through you know rituals and and, and so it was archaic techniques in ecstasy, by the way. And the other thing that was very important was they didn't give the a diagnosis, and I'm sure they had diagnoses for that time, probably not as nearly like we've got, of course. But the idea was on, on, on no account could they be told a diagno the diagnosis because I see it from a chronic pain point of view, of course, that the minute you focus on something, I'm not suggesting we don't give people diagnosis, we can't formulate a clinical plan if we don't either medically or legally, by the way. So, um, but they wouldn't tell him that. And they said, don't worry, I'll go fetch the piece that's missing. You know, the person says, cool. Uh, I mean, that was interesting from a dynamic point of view for me. Um, so it, it's, it, it's certainly a lot of thought has gone into, historically, into this mystery, and yet modern-day people not keen to talk about it, right? Oh, totally. No, they're not. But uh, you're right about the, um, in the shamanic world, I mean, there are more worlds than this one. Um, I think Philip K. Dick, you know, at the high tower, uh, the uh, man in the high castle, um, he talked uh, about his, uh, he had phenyl, phenylbarbital, I think, as a, uh, as a treatment. And he found himself in like a whole nother universe where the history was changed and it had gone off in a, in a different direction. And this is very similar to the way shamanists look at it. And also what's interesting about it is that his idea was that time not only goes forward, but goes laterally. And basically when you were to pick up and recover a part of yourself, 
in in another world it would be the shaman's duty to go to that world and recover it and bring it back to the present one <laughs> oh really I, i didn't know that no i hadn't heard that one Maybe. that's that's a wild one but uh, yeah you have um elias i yeah he elites goes into about that in the, i think in shamanism he goes about various um you know things from reports from that came back during the uh the, during the exploration of siberia and things like that yeah Well, I mean, look at, you know, looking back at you people, well, what did they know? But I mean, I remember when this big, well, big bang was big to me, but I don't know how many years it'd been going on for. And it was like shocking virtually. Um, but the Hindus believed in the cyclical universe, um, Kulpa versus Pralaya. And Kulpa was the actual active, it actively functioning, whether the, while the resting universe was called pralaya, to try and reflect this, create, destroy, create, destroy. And of course, the master destructor, uh, uh, deconstructor Shiva was overseeing all of this. And it even applied to ideas. So one can't just, you know, one can always just say, well, that's historic. Uh, but it doesn't mean there weren't some sort of insights attached to it. And to me, that is always very interesting because when we look at someone scared of dying, well, if you follow the secular humanistic the, uh, piece, we're talking about annihilation. Nothing, you actually don't know you're dead. So everyone else is grieving, but you're not. So obviously that sounds like, well, okay, so what can you do about it? The people who worry are, are, are those that worry are more concerned that a piece of them or a form of them, probably most likely form of consciousness, but no, no uh, substance, is somehow, is somehow going to survive. Now, if they just survive, then they survive in a realm where everything else is like that. So no problem with that. The problem really comes to people who buy into a deity, some deity or group of, And that's fine too if if you get a good report card when you go, right? The ones yeah. who are really worried are the ones who find that the deity or deities are displeased with them and what that looks like. So one can knuckle, I mean, if, if you say secular humanist, then, well, I mean, what are you going to do about it? It's like if you get a severe illness, you you get it, and um, it's not treatable. Well, that this is this that it gets really interesting on this because when you look at you know a lot of Eastern philosophy is cyclical, um, and while the Western tends to be more linear, and you know like there's progress, and like progress is a big thing, and it was a big theme. I mean, you have Darwin with evolution, so. We have things going to a higher state of some sort, and that's one concept. And then, of course, I, I take Dick's viewpoint of, okay, so you have side universes, and you can end up being in a universe which maybe isn't as good as the one you were in if you do very bad deeds. 
uh, again, there's there's con- are there consequences, Consequent, you know, right. you know, to our actions, and 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 that gets you know again you get into tremendous, you know, ethical sort of ideas on it, but the idea that you know you continue, again, that you know it seems to me. I mean, if I look at the paradox thing, I mean, I look at there's different types of information. There's information that's compressible, that is to say, you know, a physical law. You know a law, and now you can, you can, you just by knowing the law, you can have a whole bunch of information, but you've compressed all that down to just, you know, y equals mx plus b. You know, you've got all lines, and there's your line. Then you have laws which are randomness, like, for instance, like random numbers, you can have a random number generator, but... Um, there's an algorithm there. So that ultimately you will compress that data down to an algorithm. Lottery numbers, you know, are terrifically good. I mean, because uh, scientists can use those as random numbers and random numbers aren't compressible. There's nothing to predict what the next one will be. So the data that you have is the data you got because there's no way to come up with a law that, that handles that. And then you have another type of information, which is immersion, which is where you get um, the creation of new substances, new things. And that is the result of complexity and complexity theory, where you have uh, elements that are have one characteristic, you put them together and there's a whole new one. Well, that creates totally new pieces of information. But the paradox is really interesting because it defies context. It mm-hmm. is timeless. And because it flips, it just keeps on going. So the tendency, I would think, would be, yes, there is, a, there is that going forwardness and that, you know, death is not necessarily the end because then you just flip it and now you're back in life again. And that would make some sense. But there may be the additional constraint that, you know, actions do matter. And one could be maybe you know, what that future life will be Mm -hmm. is the big question. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I think of death, I mean, as if we look again, going back into Eastern philosophy, if we take away from you as a person, okay, your name, your history, so you have no history, your, your feelings, and you have no feelings, your hates, those things you love, and you start removing this, all you get is sort of particularly also sight you know you got to remove sight because sight is our construct of what we and how we see the world so you take that away and all you have is being and this is really an interesting concept and maybe why we had um, you know the buddhists and many people go into the idea of just being and, you know, that is one way, I guess, to confront death. But do you handle death by just going off and, and sitting on a rock? And that's got its problems also, because is that correct? Is, is that the way you handle living? Um, that would mean, you know, you could be a shrub and that would be just mm-hmm. as good. Yeah. And that doesn't quite add up either. So. This right. gets into so the beingness is the thing that you you would you would have, and again, maybe dependent upon how you view your own life in terms of good, bad, and you know your satisfaction with it, which may have some inkling of 
how future existences might pan out. Anyway, that's a, that's a thought, just to yeah, throw that in the mix. Definitely. And then also what we perhaps could have covered earlier is, you know, what is the value of life? Well, life has intrinsic value, which gives it some urgency because there's utility and scarcity, the two cardinal uh, points uh, pointers to towards value. Um, we can do stuff in in our life, and it's 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 brief. As you get older, you see exactly how brief it is, and it's very interesting to me because the, the the one model we have, and it's obviously mythological, but in the Greek pantheon, most of those gods are spiteful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they will, you know, they, they randomly punish or even like, well, here's, here's Trevor. Let's just flick him now and see because we've, you know, we've forgotten about him for a month kind of scene and just see how he deals with, well, the incident or the carnage. I, I don't pick, pick one between the two. And uh, I mean, remember reading about Kronos, the first of the three titans. Now, this is strictly not the gods, but they have forerunners to the gods. Kronos uh, was a titan of governing time, interestingly, and was associated with Eon, the, the god of time. So he ends up eating all three of his children only after his mother persuades him to castrate his father, who's called Uranus. Now, otherwise, they were a lovely family. And <laughs> you, you have this ongoing, ongoing, like, uh, in, in fact, even in if you look at Greek plays, I mean, we hear about how wonderful the playwrights were. There was a handful, Aristophanes, Euripides, and those, a ton of hacks, because theater was big time in ancient Greek. In fact, in fact the plots were so were so sloppy that they were unworkable. And to keep the audience from running away or walking away, they would have this construct called deus ex machina, which is Roman, uh, Latin, not, not Greek, but they had a different name for it, where it's a god comes out of a machine or a device. So when mm -hmm. we ran into real difficulties, there were contradictions. You couldn't buy into this flimsy pungent script anymore, they would have someone dressed like Pallas Athene or Minerva in the Roman version. And she'd come down with a helmet, turbo eye rolling at these humans that screw things up. And actually in the script, just order this one, you put up your kids for adoptions, you kill this one, you can be a hermit and sort it out and then get hoisted back up. So there's this idea of when things are out of your control, you have to rely on deities because it's a mess. And I think that is perfused, like, well, the classics perfused everything, including the dominant, um, what dominated Europe in the medieval times, which was the church in every, in every way. And Absolutely. You know, yeah. Totally. And, and, and to go back into that, to go back onto that point, if we look at um, you know Greek tragedy, these were actually religious festivals, and there is a lot of evidence showing that you know a lot of the participants, or not the participants, at least the audiences, were um, you know probably higher than a kite, and a lot of these the tragedies again were they were political statements. Yes. But they had a tremendous amount with death. I mean, when you think of the first 
tragedy I think we have, which I think is, I don't know, I think it was, maybe it was Euripides, whatever it's called, the Persians. And you have a, uh, you know, this all of a sudden, you know, Darius, you know, the dad of uh, uh, Xerxes or whatever who screwed up, you know, comes about and says, you know, and the mom, you know, says, oh, what do we do? And there comes this ghost. And there is Darius talking about this. And this was a really, if you look at, at that time, um, you have a lot of, of this type of thing coming up. I mean, one of the interesting people was a classicist by the name of E.R. Dodds. And he wrote, uh, he did a lecture series at Berkeley in 1949. Mm-hmm. And I, this was one of the most stunning things I think I have ever read was he started talking about, well, what this whole idea of body and spirit, where did it come from? Because, you know, one of the things about death is that you're supposed to somehow your body goes away and, you know, and whatever the spirit is left. But and he traced this back to, again, to the Siberian shamans. And again, they use a lot of hallucinogenics and uh, psychotropic Uh, like mushrooms and things like that and you had the mystery religions which were fundamental to being part of that culture and so there was an awareness of other worlds much more so than say now which the christians obviously you know suppressed in a big way because early christianity was going in that direction too but then that was pretty well you know done away with but And the point I'm saying is that, again, when we look at these early, we always look through it through the lens of, you know, what we think we know, not necessarily what was happening at that time. And if we start looking at it as an ecstatic experience, you're going to have to put mm-hmm. that death element in it because it's, yeah. uh, it's part and parcel of ecstasy. I mean, you, right. you get close to death you know it's <laughs> that type of thing and yeah. so you, you know you wonder you know what does it all mean and and maybe the biggest secret of all is it it doesn't mean that much right and and that is another way to look at it well i'm just thinking uh, if it were a greek play then it was definitely about the persian screwing up i guess the market. oh yes the, it, it was i mean the persians screwed up and you know and they they got totally massacred and They're coming home in defeat. And then, of course, you know, well, how do we deal with that? But you can also see how it became entrenched and how you could even market the concept of indulgences uh, mm-hmm. that led to um, Luther pinning his ni- 95 theses. Yeah, um, yeah. Starting the Reformation, <laughs> where you could actually pay money um, and you would be given a safe passage Uh, well, it's it, which makes sense because when you think about it, I mean, one of the biggest, hardest things I think to do is for us to really take on the medieval mindset. I mean, what was that? I mean, everything. I mean, that's why they had the Book of Hours. That's because every hour, you know, was assigned some religious significance. So, you know, when you, you, I mean, when you think about that, I mean, that is a very structured sort of existence, particularly if you were sort of at a sort of a higher level. I mean, you were definitely, uh, you know, the, the church, you know, basically monitored and constructed everything of which you believe. So when you think about it, 
death was um, always depicted. I mean, you look at uh, some of the, the really beautiful manuscripts, Book of Hours, like the Duke de Berry is one. They, they just, there's death is everywhere. I mean, there's little skeletons crawling out of this and crawling out of that because it was the, the big deal. And when you think about pain, since you know, you're, you know, you're a doctor and pain is one of your big deals. I mean, pain was not viewed as bad. Pain was good because you were closer to God because, you know, Christ died on the cross and that was a pretty holy moment. And so, therefore, when you were in pain, you were closer to the divine. And that's, in fact, why, you know, torture was actually done on, on, on witnesses, because by being in pain, chances are you would be closer to the divine and be part of the truth and 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 getting one's concept, you know, just one's mind around that concept for a little is, you know, takes some work. Right. Yeah. No. It's definitely. It's definitely. Um, uh, you know, the it been a major marketing tool. I mean, they would have been seen differently, but the the control was so pervasive, where um, kings could be deposed on what was decided by the church. Um, we, I don't know, we've never seen, have we seen anything since then like that? Not that I'm aware of historically. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, it's interesting when you're talking about the soul. Now, Epicurus said the body is separate from the soul and the soul is separate from the body, which we know. But they've, you see, the problem comes with soul and consciousness. Now, I'm not saying it's this can be substituted. Um, but I do have a better handle, I think, on what I understand about consciousness. Um, because John Locke, you see, also the philosopher said, the self is identified with consciousness and self consists of sameness of consciousness. So that's already a marker to me, possibly a marker or a tag or a, a an ID tag of the person's continuation in another realm. Let's call it a realm. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because, because the whole point is if I change radically to my consciousness, which is infinite, well, it's probably st structured different and integrated. Oh, I hope it is because uh, it's supposed to be. But, I mean, how do you identify Trevor in this mix? Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's quite a few uh, philosophers now who who see that as part of a continuation. That's, I mean, for the first time, it looks like it is dive. It's not a soup you go into, or it doesn't have to be. Let's just say that I don't want to say what it is and what it's not, but I, it's conjecture, right? So um, it doesn't have to be a sort of anonymous soup. Um, no, it doesn't. But, you know, but also, I think also equally important is consciousness. I mean, we are who we are because of the stories that we've lived and the stories that we believe. And if we take away all the stories, what's left, and then one sort of gets an inkling of it. Um, one question I have for you, Trevor, is, you know, you're a doctor and, you know, dealing with pain and you have seen and experienced death in others have you did you notice a really big change when a person dies 
I mean, personally, I'd love to know. No, I didn't. I didn't get this. I mean, yeah, once you make the diagnosis, some type of person dies in their sleep, for example, you get there and they look asleep unless they've been there a few hours and, you know, kind of thing. But um, it, no, you don't get the feeling. I mean, people sometimes think that, you know, there are people who've never seen. Uh, I've got patients who the first time they saw a corpse is when they went to some Asian country where it's a lot of highly populated and so forth. And, that you know, in the morning, some people die, you know, because they, they're homeless. And it, they were shocked, you know. But um, it's not as though it... Uh, it looks, you wouldn't think anything. You would think you've intruded on somebody who's sleeping. Interesting. Now, how about, have you ever had a person die in front of you? Yes. Yes. And what did, what did you think about that? I mean, uh, was there a difference? Did you notice a difference? Um, I mean, did you say, go, boom, that's when it I happened? I think, you know, you're so wired trying to do what you can that, um, and there's a whole lot of people about that, you so in that adrenaline moment, uh, I mean, that's like a, an air pilot having problems, you know, significant problems with the plane. I would suspect, I don't know. Um, but uh, I did feel, I didn't feel, you see, in a clinical mode, one is very different from when one is under normal circumstances. It's, I didn't feel, I, I mean, obviously you said, and then it's, it's a scene as a failure, depending on the situation, what could be done or, or may, maybe unrealistically couldn't have been done. But it hasn't have that, um, that I mean, look, in, with regards to your first question, I mean, you sometimes get called and the person's eyes are still open. Mm -hmm. And that stare kind of tells you this is very weird, this person, is very motionless for someone who's awake because that's your assumption. But it's not It's not like, um, I mean, yeah, the vitality, as the Victorians would have said, have, has passed. But I, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think that a person who, um, you know, I don't see it as, I, I'm, I'm, maybe many people disagree, but it's seeing a corpse that's kind of, is not necessarily a PSTD issue, I would think. I mean, unless it's someone you know well and weird circumstances and there's signs, I, I, I would suspect. Um, yeah, I don't know. I actually can't even imagine what other people think. I mean, it, it depends on age, culture, uh, circumstances, what the setup is. Uh, it's very hard to uh, take the to answer that one. I mean, yeah, well, I know. I'm just the reason why I say is that, um, you know, if you, I had to deal a lot with horses and sometimes you had to put them down. And that was a moment. And, you know, there is a you know, before and thereafter. And, you know, you're the horse is alive and now the horse is dead. And somewhere in that thing, something seriously does happen. Mm -hmm. um, at least, I mean, one can feel it emotionally. Um, when you know, with with even with uh, dogs and things like that, I imagine with humans, it's even it's even worse to some degree because it's like uh, there's something that's gone away, and I and I suppose that is a view that you know is somewhat historic in the sense that every culture sort of has that idea that something has changed and that person is no longer with us 
and there is the immortality that's bought by a person's reputation. You know, the Greeks thought, you know, if you were uh, if you were you were able to live again or be immortal in your songs, you know, that way, you know, songs about you, that was that was a pretty good deal. Um, and nowadays, you know, I can we look at it. But to me, one is always immortal because of the fact that one has lived for however long one has lived and connected with people, you know, and changed I mean, the yeah. world, even if only on an incremental basis. Right. Uh, Absolutely. But eventually, the butterfly effect, you know, I mean, eventually, big things happen as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. Um, I, you know, again, what I said about the PTSD, I mean, that can be any circumstance, but I don't think it's necessarily shocking. Now, if I had, if you were the person, like a relative, and they pass, and you're there at the moment, you will pop. You will feel something, but you know I'm being called uh, uh, the home thing uh, with. It's already transpired, and mm-hmm. in the hospital setting. We all working flat out. There's usually not the only person involved, and um, and and yeah, it's um, it 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 hasn't been too marked. It's the setting, you know. If you look in the 1930, like most people in the United States, died at home. And by nineteen mm-hmm. three decades later, it was like uh, sixty or seventy, sixty percent or something. So it jumped up very quickly. And now, who knows? I just want to go on to something that's a big deal: the psychology. Now, in psychology, we um, we have we use attribution to ex- we explain people's behaviors, um, and we look at internal uh, things that could do this and or external things. So dispositional being internal and um, situational being external. And I was thinking about this and I thought that, you know, this fear or concern about death is actually both. I think with our human consciousness, we're very aware that the clock is ticking. Uh, you know, even one can be on holiday, relaxed and stuff, and you still think, well, you know, I've been to a lot of places or I've had a lot of holidays or whatever you think, but it draws you back. Uh, and then situational is there is this general um, feel. And as I say, starting, well, in certainly the Middle Ages, uh, early Middle Ages, or even before, um, where this concept of oh, what's, what, what do I face when I die? Would you agree with that, or do you feel that's a bit? No, I think there is that, but you know, to me, it's more there's nature and nurture, mm-hmm. and one's born with certain genetic proclivities, and but those manifestations, if correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the doctor in this, but most of them start showing up by the time, or have have shown up by the time you're forty. And um, by that time, you know, your those genetic markers are manifesting themselves. Now, if your nurture was in a different direction, one could definitely get a conflict and would get the midlife crisis, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, that whole idea comes up because you're not really being who you really are. I mean, you know, there's the idea... that an apple tree can only bear apples. Well, this there is some 
tendency on that with humans because a human cannot be anything but a human. And if we narrow that down to an individual, you have your own DNA, you have your own genetic makeup, and you can only be what you are. But if you are acting con in conflict to what you are, you're going to have, first of all, you're going to, death becomes an issue because the thing is you were never lived because you never were able to be who you really should be. You know, right. you were always something else. And so now that goes into conflict and you're going, whoa. I mean, half of the, the fun, I think, of growing older is you lose that now I'm supposed to. And you are now in, you know, it's all over to me. And however my nature is, this is what I'm going to do. And mm -hmm. I'm going to have a blast doing it. And then death tends to lose a little bit of its sting. But if you talk to, you know, a teenager, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you say you were going to die and I would, I, you know, yeah, I would lose it, you know, <laughs> couldn't take it. But, you know, but later on, you know, somebody says, well, you're going to die. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know, but that it took years to get to that point and an awful lot of things. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, no, certainly you get, uh, I don't think it's blase think one gets tired, like, you know, reading about a reincarnation, and I don't want to offend anyone, the people who, you know, it's in the culture, I guess, and so forth, but the idea of, like, rebounding back better somehow just gets me in the crop. I don't know, you know, it, make, it fatigues me, so it, it's even bigger to me than the death issue, because mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what it is, the idea of coming back for some reason, and maybe I'm in a minority, I don't know, it's not something... You know, I, I get to discuss with people, but uh, yeah. The other one I think I, I, I have to, we have to bring up is this NDEs, near death experiences. And these, as you mm -hmm. know, are very well described. And, um, and these features like, you know, changing emotional states, even thinking, and then the paraworldly or mystical experiences. Um, and everything seems funny in that that's people under deep anesthesia or people who had a cardiac arrest, um, even sometimes people who've almost drowned, I believe. And mm -hmm. when they come out of it, they they very um they're kind of more loving and and that sort of thing. Uh, and and there's even been people who have seen they're in the hospital and then they've seen people working over them. But they've, yes. seen, they've seen it from, like, the ceiling. Mm -hmm. now, and these are well documented. Apparently, it occurs in some form in up to 20% of cardiac arrests. I didn't know that. So Wow, um, I didn't know that either. That, no, that's, that's fascinating. That's right. and, but, it's, but not all of them, just in no. certain ones. Yes, yes. And um, so now the, the idea is, you know, for people who feel that there is nothing emotionally, cognitively, or conscience-wise, consciousness, or, mm -hmm. yeah, if, if, if there's no brain physiology, well, I guess physiology would still continue for a while. Um, but, it, you know, and apparently checking on these people, they're internal, they're consistent the whole time. And mm -hmm. the memory doesn't really fade. And then even more interesting is the um, is is the spirituality the spiritual growth after traumatic events? So my question would be: Okay, did they 
did they flash mental images like of their situation, maybe because of lack of oxygen or whatever could have triggered that. I, I have no idea. Um, but but what what causes them to be better people when they come out? Do they do they see a picture of where this is headed or or what? It's not like they become worse and turn on people. Well, I saw death and I'm cheesed off about it and you're going to know about it kind of thing. It's not like that at all. Um, so, you know, it's even, it's even, um, they, and they have problems. It's like they struggle to tell people about it. You know, they get this, oh, yeah, right kind of thing. But they will describe it as the most real thing that happened to them. Now, this yes, I, I've heard of this. This is fascinating. And I, you know, how that is, of course, you could be cynical and say, well, they just took a wrong turn. But, you know, I don't, you know, the other, you you went to the left, you should have gone to the right, right? Was, you know, you did. But no, it's like, but I don't, I know what you mean. Um, But I think anybody who has one of those, you know, where you're, it's like that revitalization, like all of a sudden you're given a new lease on life. And isn't that extraordinarily hopeful? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, well, look look how, how even an event will change a person, like one cardiac incident, if it's, if it's minor even, can make a person live healthily, and they could end up living a very lengthy life, even given that they've had an earlier heart attack. Uh, the getting that fright sure does jog things up a bit. Um, and, uh, I mean, the it's not the kind of evidence you can ignore, I feel, because these people are checked out with all kinds of personality stuff um, and um, segment uh, studies and stuff and, and questionnaires. I see we're running out of time. Ivan, uh, there's so much to speak about. I think we've covered half of what we wanted to in this uh, first section. Uh, I would in, uh, encourage listeners to listen to the uh, conclusions or to the ideas expressed uh, in the uh, following uh, section two, which will be uh, broadcast a week later. That would be on the 12th. Um, So, Ivan, thank you so much for coming and looking forward to speak again uh, next week. No matter what anyone thinks or says, it is a very important subject. And... um, we we need to have more discussions on this, I feel. I agree. Thank you, Trevor. This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape. Until next week. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.